So, uh, a soldier in the military, the army, which I know most about, when they want to become a leader in the military, specifically either an officer or an NCO, non-commissioned officer, a sergeant, they have to go through a long process to do that. One thing is they do online training, they do online classes, but one thing they do is they have to go to what's called a board. Well, what's a board? Well, a soldier will, he'll go up in front of a group of other non-commissioned officers, there'll be a sergeant major there, there'll be other people, and they're gonna drill them, they're gonna ask them lots of questions, and then they're gonna judge the soldier that's standing in front of them to see if he's worthy, or that if he can become a non-commissioned officer, if he can become a sergeant. One of the things they do to evaluate whether they can do that, whether this person can become an NCO, is they judge them by the army values. And there's seven. Loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, honor, integrity, personal courage. So, so they look at the, the soldier and they, they, you know, if he knows the questions, if he's studied, he's done the online training, and they assess his character and they think he's fit for a leader, they will approve him to become an NCO and he will be a leader in the military. There was a previous command sergeant major of the army named Leon uh, Caffey, and he spoke to a group of soldiers, a group of specialists who were wanting to become NCOs. And this is what he said to them. Well, first he said this before he talked to them. He said, soldiers transitioning from the lower enlisted ranks to becoming a non-commissioned officer are among the most important people in the army as they prepare to lead the organization into the future. And he goes on to say, as leaders, these soldiers need to have impeccable character. And he adds, talking to the soldiers, he says, we hold you to a high standard. God holds church leaders to a high standard too. Leaders, they have a heavy influence on the people, whether that's in a company, whether that's in the military, whether that's in the church. They influence people. The people under them are to imitate, follow them. And in the church, leaders, elders, deacons, though we will fall way short, are to represent Jesus and be like Jesus to the congregation as best we can. You might wonder why we're looking at the qualifications for elders and deacons today. Well, it's because we're about to have nominations for officers. <clears throat> and rather than in your mind have your own standards for what a leader needs to be, for what an elder needs to be, for what a deacon needs to be, I want to show you what the Bible says the standards are for what an elder and a deacon needs to be. <clears throat> The thing is, we, we shouldn't be, when we think about who should become an officer, who should become a leader, we shouldn't be focused on who is charismatic, who is gifted, who is popular. We should be looking, the basis of our nominations we sh uh, should be what scripture says, right? And we're going to look at 
four points this morning. Four points that are in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. If you look at this, verses 1 to 7 are the qualifications for an elder. Verses 8 to 13 are the qualifications for a deacon. But look at it for a second. What differences and similarities do you notice looking at the elder and deacon qualifications? Just give you a, a second to glance at it. The, qual- the qualifications are almost the exact same. They're almost the exact same. So when you hear me, we're going to focus on verses 1 to 7, but when you hear me talk about these qualifications this morning, with the exception of teaching on the elder office, when you hear me talk about these qualifications this morning, know that these elder qualifications are also to be applied to deacons. Why do you think that the same qualifications are for elders and deacons, with a couple of exceptions? Specifically with character and things like that. It's because elders and deacons are not separated on character. They're separated on roles within the church. Right? Elders are the spiritual overseers of the church, and they have what's a teaching office. They are the teachers of the church. We, as elders, are supposed to care for the spiritual matters uh, of the church. We set policy. We teach the congregation. And the deacons are to free up the elders to do this by handling practical matters in the congregation. Uh, they, deacons are also supposed to set an example and help the elders carry out the policies that's been put in place. So there's no difference in character. The difference is in role. I will say that there are a couple differences, though, between 1 and 7 and 8 to 13. I already said that 1 to 7 has, must be able to teach, whereas the deacons doesn't say that. But there's another thing. In verse 8, it says that a deacon must not be double-tongued. What does that mean? It's specifically saying a deacon can't be, shouldn't be two-faced. He shouldn't be going around saying one thing to one person and something else to someone else. It's implying not to gossip. So deacons, and I bring this out because this is just one of the differences. It's like about one of the, it doesn't say it for elders, but of course, elders shouldn't be double-tongued as well. But I just wanted to point out that one difference. Now let's get in our text. What do you think the main point of verses 1 to 7 and, well, 8 to 13 is? If you have to look at this, what do you think the main point is? A Christian leader should be above reproach. A Christian leader should be above reproach. What does it mean for an overseer to be above reproach? It means that when you think of this person that's going to be an elder, that's going to be a deacon, there shouldn't be something you can look to that you think is a major shortcoming that disqualifies them. That's not to say that they're going to live perfectly up to these standards. That doesn't mean that everything that we're going to talk about is perfect, but that also doesn't mean that the shortcoming is just something you've made up. For instance, uh, if you just don't like the way the person votes, 
you don't like his political positions, you don't like the way he dresses. That means nothing. The only thing that matters about being above reproach is what's being said here. And so there are four points Paul's going to give that supports and explain what it means to be above reproach. I'm going to give you the outline. Verses 1 to 7, an overseer must be above reproach. Verses 1 to 3, being above reproach means having godly character. Verses 4 to 5, being able to manage his household and the church well. 6, being spiritually mature. Verse 6, being spiritually mature or not a recent convert. And verse 7, having a good reputation with outsiders. So those are the four points. That's what it means to be above reproach. Now let's look at point one. An overseer must display godly character. What does it mean to display godly character? Well, verses one to three has 10 characteristics. It's explaining to you what it means to have godly character. And some of these things overlap, so we're not going to talk about each one individually. We'll go quickly through a couple of them. But the first thing he says is a deacon or elder must be the husband of one wife. What does that mean? What is the husband of one wife? There are three positions on this about what the husband of one wife means. Uh, One position is Paul is speaking against polygamy. You can only have one wife. You can't have three wives or four wives or five wives. But I don't think he's saying that. Polygamy wasn't an issue in the church. They weren't going to allow somebody who has an polygamous marriage be in the church. But it also wasn't really a big problem in the first century. The other position is that some people argue that he couldn't have been divorced, meaning he's married to somebody else. That means he's got two wives, even though he's divorced her. I don't agree with that interpretation either. There are biblical grounds for divorce, so there's no reason that if somebody, if their wife left them, you know, committed adultery, something like that, there's no reason they could be remarried, and that's not sinful, that's not against the biblical principles, and they could hold office. Also, even if somebody's divorced, that doesn't mean they are disqualified forever. So I don't agree with that interpretation. The position I take is that Paul is saying that an elder has to be faithful to his significant other. He has to be faithful to his significant other. How do I see that? Some people have a very rigid understanding of this phrase. They see the phrase, husband of one wife, and they argue and conclude that means an elder or a deacon has to be married. They cannot be single. That's what some people say. That's what it's assuming. But that's not true. The problem with that position is that they are looking at an English uh, translation, and it's actually an interpretation. The Greek text does not say husband or wife. It doesn't say anything about husband and wife. It says the the literal translation is a one-woman man, a one-woman man. And so if we're going to be faithful to Scripture, we need to know the literal translation. But what the emphasis of this is, it's not that he has to have a woman, 
but that if, he, that if he is in a relationship, he has to be faithful to that woman. Does that make sense? He shouldn't have two or three women. He shouldn't be in a relationship with somebody and playing around and, and, and talking with several women. He shouldn't be known as playing several women at, at, at the same time. He shouldn't be flirtatious with other women if he's in a relationship. He's supposed to be faithful to the woman he's with. So a one-woman man is not focusing on marital status. It's on faithfulness and sexual purity. So an elder and deacon must be faithful and sexually pure. He goes on to say in verse 2 that an overseer must be sober-minded. What does it mean to be sober-minded? Well, if you look down at verse 11, he explains. He says the same thing about deacons, or their wives. He says, um, sober-minded, or he says, sorry, likewise, their wives likewise must be sober-minded, faithful in all things. Faithful in all things. What, what does that mean? Paul is using what's called an apposition here. Uh, I'm going to give you a, a little bit of a grammar lesson, but an apposition is a clause that explains what the previous clause said. So if I say, my name is Brandon Brown, uh, husband of Margie, father of Genesis, those two clauses, husband of Margie, father of Genesis, are what's called apositive clauses, right? They're explaining, they're giving information about me. Now this clause right here, faithful in all things, is explaining and giving information about what it means to be sober-minded. He is, some people take it to mean not addicted to alcohol and things like that, and he is going to talk about that in a second, but it's not what sober-minded means. He's using the word sober-minded to meaning that they need to be spiritually alert. They need to be spiritually alert. They need to, an elder or deacon needs to be alert and aware of their environment. They need to be aware of their weaknesses. They need to be aware of their surroundings. They need to be aware so they don't put themselves in positions to, that would lead them to fall. They need to constantly be on high alert. I remember when I was in Iraq, my first tour, my second tour, not so much, my first tour, you know, I'm 19 years old and six o'clock every night, they send me out to a guard tower and I go to this tower and it's on the corner of the, uh, of the post, it's in one of the corners of the post, really high in the air and I'm in there for 12 hours. I'm in there for six at night to six in the morning. And my job is I'm supposed to look out and just make sure that nobody is coming up to the base, that nobody is trying to sneak in, that nobody's trying to attack us, and that required for me to be alert. I had to be on watch. I had to be on guard. This is what, this is what he's getting at. He's saying that the elder or deacon needs to be on guard. He needs to be awake. He needs to be spiritually alert to things. And from here, uh, Paul is going to go on. He's gonna, the rest of these characteristics are almost self-explanatory. He's going to say an elder and deacon, they must have self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit. So in everything that he does, he must not overindulge. He must not be controlled by something. He's supposed to have self-control in all things. Verse 2, he must be respectable. He needs to treat people 
kindly and with dignity. It goes on to say an elder must be hospitable. Does that mean an elder or a deacon needs to be an extrovert? No? Yeah? Well, it doesn't mean that, but it does mean that the people in the church need to be comfortable approaching him. It also means that he should be willing to invite people, uh, be warm and, and inviting, and even open up their homes. It says an elder, and this is specifically for an elder, this isn't for deacons, an elder must be able to teach. He has to be able to teach. Deacons aren't required to do this. Elders are. And I, and I was saying, and this doesn't, if you're following along, I said verses one to three is about uh, godly character. This is the one thing that doesn't necessarily go with godly character. You know, having, being able to teach doesn't mean you're godly or because the deacons don't have to teach, it doesn't mean they're not godly. So that's the one thing that doesn't really go there. But, uh, but it is something an elder must do. And this can be demonstrated. And so what, what's expected actually is that elders are supposed to be teaching and uh, being able to teach Sunday school, prayer meetings, stepping in for things like that. They should be able to teach. The congregation should be able to hear from them. It should be clear. They should learn and grow from the person that is teaching. So when you're thinking about these nominations, think about, if you're thinking about somebody for elder, think about somebody that you think would be able to teach well, somebody that you could grow under. He goes on to say, an elder must not be a drunkard, means he shouldn't be addicted to alcohol. This doesn't mean abstinence, meaning none at all, but it does mean he shouldn't be drinking a lot of alcohol regularly. And uh, some people will add on abstinence, meaning no alcohol at all, but I'd be very hesitant to add on command, add commands onto scripture that aren't there. This is an elder or deacon must not be quarrelsome or divisive. So one of the main goals for the church is unity. Paul wants the churches to be unified. And so we shouldn't be electing people who are divisive, people who uh, are gossipers, people who always complaining about certain people, people who are perhaps complaining about the leadership, complaining about policies. These are divisive people. These aren't the kind of people that you want to be putting in office. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united. He wants the church to be united, and a leader is supposed to be somebody who builds that unity. He shouldn't be somebody who's going to meetings and going out and you know, saying, I don't agree with anything they're saying, I think this is ridiculous, stuff like that. Just, it's just judging character at this point. Finally, Paul says, an overseer must not love money. So, in America, this can be very difficult to discern. In America, with all our technology, with all the things we have, it can be hard to see who actually is a lover of money or not. You think about, some people say, well, I, you know, I don't have much. And if you are poor in America, there's people in third world countries that are saying that you are very rich. They would look at you and think, you're rich. 
So, so what does it mean? It's not just speaking about the Creflo dollars, the Kenneth Copelands with their $100 million jets. It's, it's talking about in a more subtle form. And I want to be clear on this because there are many wealthy Christians, there are many wealthy believers in Scripture who have very nice things, but, uh, but they're also very generous at the same time. Just because God has given them this much, they give away a lot, it doesn't mean necessarily that they, you know, are, are in love or enslaved to what they have. And so I don't necessarily think somebody who has more expensive things necessarily means that they love money or what money buys. What's a better way to think about this? Does this person live beyond their means? Does this person live beyond their means? One way to tell would be uh, credit card debt. Does this person love money and love things so much that they're buying things they can't afford? That doesn't mean you can't have a credit card, you know, use it for rewards, whatever, but if you're constantly buying things that you can't afford, that means it's evidence that maybe you're loving things a little too much, and it's evidence of greed. And personally, I think all elders and deacons should submit to a credit check. So the first point, verses 1 to 3, is that to be above reproach, an elder or deacon must have godly character. So when an owner of a company, of a store, a manager, whatever, when they select leaders and they put these people in positions, they typically choose somebody that embodies the values and beliefs of that company. For instance, if a car dealership wants to get away from the, you know, the greedy car salesman or the sleazy car salesman, they want to get away from that and they want to be a business that's uh, more moral and, and not pushy and not trying to put you in something you can't afford, they're going to put leaders in positions that are going to embody those values. You want people in, position that, uh, in these positions that embody those values. And if they don't embody that, if the leaders aren't following what the company wants them to follow, then the company's message and vision is going to be distorted. It's the same, and even to a higher extent, with the church. We were all predestined to be godly. We were all predestined to be like Christ. And when our church leaders fall short of godly character, that impedes the church's sanctification, because the church is to look to the leaders. When we look at all the commands in Scripture, there's so many commands in Scripture, right? Right? And you read it, and it's just so much information. And you're like, how does this apply? Well, a leader in the church should be somebody you look to and be like, okay, I think that's what it means. I can look to him and see what this means. So elders and deacons must have godly character. I want to say a few things before we move on. The next points are going to be quicker. When you're uh, considering an elder and deacon, these are the characteristics you should be looking for. And I want you to know that Paul doesn't have in mind here a one-and-done mindset. Like, for instance, somebody does something they're not respectable at one point or does something uh, that doesn't mean they're necessarily disqualified after one failure. Uh, any elder, any deacon can fall short at any time. Nobody's perfect. That We're all 
still sinners. There, I will say that there are sins, though, that are so egregious that doing it once would disqualify a person. But what he has in mind here is not necessarily a one-and-done mindset. What he has in mind here is a lifestyle, a reputation. When you think about this person, are these the qualities you think about? That's, that's more what Paul is getting at. And, and this isn't just for elders and deacons, by the way. This is for every Christian. Every Christian should strive to live by this. Every Christian should strive for this godly character. Even though every Christian should be trying to do these characteristics and, and, and grow in this godly character, it's only the ones that are actually following that and have that godly character that are eligible to be officers. So the next point, they're not only are supposed to have godly character, but they need to be able to manage the church. An overseer, point two, must manage his own household well. This is straightforward. He needs to love his wife, and he needs to lead her and his, and his family in a sacrificial way. In Ephesians 5, 25, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How did Christ love the church? He died for it. And likewise, an elder or a deacon should lead by putting his family's needs above his own. He should lead sacrificially. And so when it talks about men being leaders of the family, men being leaders of the wives, men being leaders of the children, that doesn't mean that they're supposed to just sit on the couch and give commands and orders and tell, tell the children and wife what to do. That's not what that means. They're supposed to lead by example. We are servant leaders. It says, it goes on to say that overseers' children must be submissive. It means they should be obedient, not acting out of control and, and disrespecting their parents. And I want to say that you can get a child in line by being authoritarian, strict, mean. They should be leading their family and their children, and they should be obedient, but in a way that the children love their father and love their parents, not in a way where the children are afraid of their parents. Paul here, and the reason they must manage their own household well, he's connecting it to the church. He's arguing from the smaller to the bigger. If you can't handle something small like a family, how are you going to manage something much, more bigger, much bigger and much more complex than a church? He goes on to say, verse 5, someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Oftentimes, uh, a U.S. president or somebody who's going to be a candidate for U.S. president, one of the things that they'll talk about is this guy has no experience, this woman has no experience, they're wanting to be president, they've never even been a governor, they've never uh, been over anything else, and they're just wanting to go right into office. And it's sort of uh, like a test case. If you did well over this city, this state, whatever, then you'll be good for the country or evidence that you'll be good for the country. If a person is managing his own household well, children love him, there's a genuine love between the wife and the husband, 
there's evidence that he would be a good leader for the church. What about single men? We talked about you don't have to be married, so what about single or unmarried men? You can't evaluate it by family, right? So you can't, a single person doesn't have a family. So how do you evaluate this characteristic? Maybe, there's a couple different ways. I mean, something probably you guys won't do, but you know, if he has a leadership position at work, maybe talk to people at work and see how he does in that position. Also, if he's a potential candidate, put him in leadership positions at the church before coming deacon or elder, maybe be over a home group or something like that. The next one, uh, point three, verse six, the last two are quicker. He must not be a recent convert. This is, this is pretty, queer, uh, pretty clear. Uh, he wants overseers to be tried and tested, not, uh, and spiritually mature, not, not recent converts. Sanctification takes time, Someone who recently came to Christ doesn't have the maturity and nuance and understanding of scripture that the office of elder requires. Why should he not be a recent convert? Paul goes on. He says that they'll be arrogant and fall into a trap. He says they'll be puffed up. This is puffing up. It means being arrogant, being prideful. Why is that? And and what would happen? And he says... If a convert becomes an elder and he becomes prideful, he falls into the condemnation of the devil. Verse 7, he falls into the condemnation of the devil. What's the condemnation of the devil? Some people say that this is God's condemnation on that leader. The way that he condemns Satan, that leader will be condemned like Satan, though to a lesser extent. I disagree with that. This can get very technical into subjective and objective genitives and things like that. I don't want to talk about that. Uh, The best way I can explain to you is I think this is the condemnation that Satan gives to a believer by accusing them, Uh, just accusing them. It's whenever a a leader falls or something, you're giving Satan ammunition to condemn you and, and, and make you feel guilty and to shame you. And the reason I argue that is because there's two verses next to each other, and and these are both what's called subjective genitives, I think, but he says, uh, you fall into the condemnation of the devil, and then it says the snare of the devil. Well, the snare of the devil is a trap that Satan sets, right? So that's why I think it's condemnation that Satan gives. I think he's the same thing. Just as Satan sets the trap, Satan is the one that condemns. Uh, Mark Driscoll, he was a pastor at Mars Hill Church. He became an elder shortly after his conversion. And when he was there, he was constantly at the center of controversy. And because of some other issues, it came to a point that he felt he had to step down. Simply, I think he just came in it too young, and it was too early, and it was just too much, even though he was there for a while. And obviously when we look at this, Paul doesn't give a, spirit, uh, a specific timeline. He doesn't say, you know, two years, after two years, they're good to go. There's nothing you can look at to say that. The best thing I, can, I think we can do to understand if somebody's ready for this position is simply to assess maturity. Is this person mature enough for the office? 
Lastly, it says they must be well thought of by outsiders. An overseer must be well thought of by outsiders. Everything Paul said so far has to do with the leader's relationship with people in the church, but now it's talking about outsiders. And he's saying that it's a requirement. He must have a good reputation with outsiders. He's going to go on to talk about in the very next chapter that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth, and that's for the people in the community outside the church. They should look at the church and see that it's the truth. And so the leaders should be reflecting that truth to the community. Now, here's a a puzzle for you, because Scripture at the same time says that Christians are going to be hated. So how can at once you be respected by unbelievers in the community and hated by them? How does that work? I don't think Paul's saying that the community needs to love the leader or even like the leader. I think it's sort of going back to this above reproach thing. They shouldn't be able to look at this leader and see he's a hypocrite. They shouldn't be able to look at this leader and and see some moral failing that just uh, isn't a light to the gospel, that isn't a reflection of Jesus. I have many friends that I've tried to share the gospel with, and a lot of them just don't want to hear it, and one of the biggest objections I always hear is there's so many hypocrites in the church. There's just so many hypocrites in the church. I don't want to go to church. And... In my mind, I think often that's just an excuse because people just don't want to go to church. It's just an excuse. But at the same time, let's not give them an opportunity to justify their rejection of Christianity. Let them hate Christianity because they don't like the content, not because we're failing. So when you're thinking about a candidate, consider how he is with outsiders. Consider how unbelievers, how, if he has relationships with unbelievers, is he one, is he, does he do one thing inside this church and one thing on the outside? Is he two people? And this is also got application for you. At work, don't join in the gossip. Don't join in the dirty conversations. Let them see your faith is real. Everybody, every Christian should be above reproach. Every Christian. If you're listening here, uh, if you're here and you're not quite believing, maybe you're just visiting for the first time or you're listening in and you're sort of on the fence, you haven't made a decision for Christ, maybe you're thinking about it and you're thinking why should I come to Christ? Why should I come to God? Why should I become a believer? I want to say that a relationship with God and the forgiveness of sins and knowing Jesus Christ is the greatest experience you'll ever have. I know we love sin, we have cultivated a love for dirt, which is what sin is. But the glories and the joys of the Lord are much greater, much deeper, much more satisfying. So if you're thinking about this decision 
and you look at your life, there's no hatred of sin, there's no love of holiness, there's no love for the things of God, no care about eternal things, then I want to say to you this morning that you, I don't think you're there yet. I don't think you're believing yet. But if you have this desire in your heart and you're just saying, I want to be a believer, I want to know God, I desire to know him, then I, I, I invite you to repent, turn from your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ who died in your place so that you could be forgiven. If you have that feeling in your heart, in your mind this morning, just go home and just go pray and go pray to God until you become a new creation. So to end and to summarize the things we're talking about, when you consider somebody for the office of elder or deacon, the most important question you can ask is not about giftedness, not about popularity, not about charisma. It's does this person have godly character? What does their household look like? How mature is he and how long has he been a Christian? And what do unbelievers think about this person? These are the questions you should be asking. These are the things you should be thinking about. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you so much uh, for giving the church leaders. We pray, Father, that you would work in the hearts and minds of people in the congregation and move them towards selecting leaders that are striving and living for your values set forth in 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 13. We pray, Father, that you would raise up the right men for these positions. And we ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen.